Hey Irish fans, this is Alex Painter here to tell you that this episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. Just like Rockney and Gip are the best things in life and football often come in pairs. Onward to Victory is proud to be paired with our sponsor, WCScreens.com, the absolute gold standard in the screen printing and embroidery industry. Look no further than our friends at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Hey all, and welcome to the third volume of Alex's Irish Anecdotes. I have a few good ones for you all today, such as when the bicycle craze reached the Notre Dame campus, the time when a rock star and diehard Irish fan wrote an impassioned plea for a head coach to stay in South Bend, Coach Knut Rockney's short stint as a professional football player, and we are going to talk about one of the oldest traditions at Notre Dame. It's called the Bengal Bouts, a fundraising boxing tournament that also has Coach Rockney's fingerprints all over it. So let's have some fun. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and this is episode 79 of the most exhaustive, accessible source of Notre Dame and Notre Dame football history since 2019. As always, I am so happy to be here and be fortunate enough to have the opportunity to share more about the history of our beloved Notre Dame and Fighting Irish, and I'm glad you've elected to join me for today's offering. We will be continuing something of a show tradition here with the third installment of Alex's Irish Anecdotes. And just in case you missed the first two, they are episodes 64 and 65, both of which were released in July 2022. But what it really boils down to is, as we know, there are countless stories about Notre Dame, all worth telling. Of course, yes, this we know, but not all of them can be their very own episodes. So these Irish anecdotes allow for a few to be shared kind of in one fell swoop, if you will. And I know some folks shared with me after the first two last year that they liked the fast-paced, smaller stories uh, I don't know, more bang for the buck, I guess. But before I start carrying on a couple items to share. First, as far as what episodes are coming down the pike, there will be a blue gold game themed episode. I'm trying to figure out which angle I'm going to take, but there will be one. And the other is a second installment of the recently launched iconic sites of Notre Dame. The first episode about Touchdown Jesus or the Hesburgh Library was a runaway success, so the second installment of that is also coming down the pike. So be on the ready, Irish fans, as always. Second, none of this is possible without the help and support of the Onward to Victory Consensus All-Americans. This group includes those very special individuals who contribute to the show 
monetarily. The folks who have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show includes Mr. Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and Mike Johnson from Oak Park, Illinois. Thank you all, and if you want to join the ranks of the Consensus All-Americans, the muster roll, if you will, please feel free to visit the virtual collection baskets at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory or patreon.com slash podcast. Major props to the show's banner sponsor. That is, of course, our good pals at wcscreens.com. If you have screen printing or embroidery needs, please feel free to reach out to the gold standard of the industry, and that is wcscreens.com. Rolling forward, let's dive into anecdote number one. Sometimes folks ask me how I find out about this story or that person or whatever it may be, as some of the things we talk about here on the show can be a bit obscure, we'll use. (laughs) But a great resource and wealth of information for me is the Notre Dame 100 Years book, which was published in 1943 by early campus historian Father Arthur J. Hope. Hope was a DeKalb, Illinois native, and he eventually made his way to South Bend in 1920 to attend the Moreau Seminary. Yes, he wanted to become a priest, and that he did. He was eventually ordained in 1927. I guess I did call him Father Arthur J. Hope, so maybe that's a little self-evident, but that being said, Hope's history was meant to serve as a celebration of the first century of the university. So kind of a centennial celebration, if you will. But it's a great resource for the Notre Dame researcher. And sometimes I'll just pick it up and read a chapter or two. But I found this particular anecdote in Hope's work, and it goes like this. In late 1868, Father Edward Soren, again, the founder of the University of Notre Dame, made a journey back to France, where he was from. Uh, which he did periodically while he was president of the university. But he was out walking on one of the sidewalks one morning, kind of taking a morning stroll, if you will, and he saw what he thought was the most incredible piece of equipment he had ever seen. It was a two-wheeled apparatus that allowed for what seemed like near-effortless movement. He turned to his companion and asked, quote, What is it? His pal said, it's a new invention, the latest thing. It's a velocipede. (laughs) I feel funny even reading that. But according to Hope's work, Soren's first reaction was, quote again, I must have one for Notre Dame. But Soren appreciated physical fitness and had long assured that it was part of the curriculum at Notre Dame. He thought the velocipede could both provide enjoyment and a meaningful co-curricular and extracurricular outlet for the students. Now, if you somehow missed the show lead, you might be saying or thinking, what's a velocipede? It was actually the name for an early version of the bicycle. And while the idea of the bicycle itself wasn't new, there really hadn't been any models that saw, let's call it commercial success. Uh, But the velocipede of the late 1860s actually sparked a small craze in several countries, including eventually the United States. So Father Soren sent one of these newfangled velocipedes to his beloved campus community. 
And he actually also had the following note, which accompanied the bike. Quote, I send you a beautiful Velocipede, one of the largest and best finished in Paris. I wish I could have sent a dozen instead of one. That it will be a source of new and great enjoyments, I have no doubt. After you have tamed it, will you please give it a ride upon to Eddie, Willie, Charlie, and Georgie of the Minims, end quote. So that's kind of cool. Uh, Father Soren was thinking of the small kids as uh, that's what the Minim department was in addition to his, in addition to his college-aged students as well. But the cost of the Velocipede was $50, which that's quite a chunk of change for that time. Or as David Hurley, he's 2012 article from the Alumni Magazine shares, fully a third of the room, board, and tuition Notre Dame charged for an entire semester. So yeah, a big chunk of change. But imagine a bicycle today. So spoiler, while the Velocipede loosely resembled a modern-day bike, there were some marked differences, such as the fact that it weighed 80 pounds. 80 pounds. And short of a little leather seat or saddle, I guess is what it was called, it was made completely of iron. Now, a bike today is, of course, in the vicinity of about 25 pounds and made of lighter weight materials such as titanium or aluminum or carbon fiber, or whatever. But if you wiped out on one of these velocipedes, it could be pretty unforgiving. Because again, imagine when you were a kid and you fell either side to side on your bike, you know, it was lightweight. That velocipede was liable to crush your little leg if you're a kid. But uh, that's neither here nor there. But the velocipede, as mentioned, it did have two wheels. Uh, but there was no chain structure, so the pedals were attached to the front axle. So this particular model, the saddle was practically on top of that front tire. So again, the thing itself weighs a lot. It's very front heavy. And, uh, you know, so like I said, unforgiving if you wiped out or you crashed. And one more thing. The Velocipede was commonly called the Bone Shaker due to the bumpiness and discomfort provided to the rider. Because, of course, there was no springs attached to the seat to absorb any of the shock. Everything you ran over, your backside was feeling it. And apparently more than just your backside, with a moniker called the Bone Shaker. But I can't be 100% sure. But in looking at pictures of it, it doesn't look like it has any brakes either. So what we have here is a recipe for disaster for the Notre Dame men and boys. And that's exactly what happened when the Velocipede arrived three priests tried to ride the bike initially and after a few ill-fated tries going up and down the roads and paths and hills of campus they handed the bike over to the students and kind of said uh, enjoy I think but the brave men would jump on the cycle and inevitably they would crash spectacularly those with perhaps a little less courage watched the spectacle from the sidelines and after growing frustrated with trying to the ride outdoors if you will they actually did move inside to the gymnasium, which would hopefully provide a smoother and safer ride. Yeah, even still, not so much. Kids were wiping out left and right, and though that were the case, fortunately, no one seems to have suffered any major injuries. The students were grateful, though, for the gift from their president, and they even gently capitulated when they wrote him when they said, quote, Many thanks for the beautiful Velocipede, which you have so kindly sent that it will be a source of a immense amusement, we have no doubt. But as yet, it has not been found, end quote. <laughs> so it wasn't long after that that the Velocipede was permanently mothballed. 
but it still provides us with a humorous tale of campus history. Coming up next, a connection between Notre Dame football and a late rock superstar. Right after this. The rock band The Stone Temple Pilots were among the most commercially prolific bands of the 1990s. In fact, they sold approximately 40 million records during their career to date, and they have influenced a countless number of bands and groups since they originally hit the scene. They were really noteworthy and widely enjoyed because they were kind of one of those bands that blended a lot of influences and genres from different eras, and they kind of created a sound that at the time was pretty unique. So during the band's heyday, though, they released six consecutive albums that charted in the top 10 and 14 singles that landed inside the top 10 of the Billboard Top Rock songs, including seven that went to number one. So again, perhaps you're a Stone Temple Pilots fan. Uh, however, I, I'd play snippets of a couple of their songs, but I don't really want to get sued. And I'd sing a few for you that you may recognize, but I also sing very poorly. So just jump over to their Spotify page or whatever, you, however you listen to music. And my guess is you'll recognize several of their songs. They were kind of omnipresent during that decade. And there's a good chance they'll be immortalized in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland someday if you're the kind of person who, again, follows that. Perhaps in retrospect, they are best remembered, though, because of the very slow, very sad demise of their lead singer, Scott Weiland. Weiland, who was also the lead vocalist for a band called Velvet Revolver, which paired him with members of Guns N' Roses, suffered for decades with substance misuse. And it was a battle that was fought very publicly. And there were a few stretches in his life where it just kind of seemed he was always front page news, either sadly being arrested for this or that, or going to rehab centers, whatever it might have been. But ultimately, Wyland, after battling his demons for decades, he passed away in 2015. But not only was Wyland perhaps one of the biggest rock stars on the planet for quite some time, yes, he was also a rabid Notre Dame fan. And he got it fairly honestly, too. His stepfather, David Wyland, whose last name Scott adopted, he actually graduated from the university in 1959 with a degree in engineering. So doing a bit of research around the internet, I actually found an old Polaroid that Scott had shared from his Facebook page of himself and former Irish quarterback Brady Quinn. He, in fact, once told ESPN the following, quote, I love Notre Dame. Notre Dame runs deep in my family. My dad went there and played football there, actually. I grew up in Cleveland, and I remember going to my great aunt's house for Thanksgiving. She lived in Evanston, Illinois. So when we were in the area, we would all go over to South Bend for Notre Dame football. Now I sit here on my couch every Saturday during the season and watch them. I sit there with my fingers crossed and sweat, and I say my Hail Marys, end quote. Yeah, I'm sure some of us can probably relate to that experience. Now, I didn't find where his stepfather played football there, but he certainly was there as a student. Perhaps he did play football in the very popular 
Inner Hall League, which of course will flourish then, and it still flourishes to this day on campus. So maybe that's what uh, he was alluding to. But uh, rewinding the clock to 2007, I know it's, uh, let's see here, 16 years ago, believe it or not, but folks are feeling pretty good about then Notre Dame head coach Charlie Weiss. I know he's one of those guys that we probably tend to forget, and that's probably a conscientious choice. But during his first two seasons, he had gone 10-3 and and 9-3. and And it was even rumored that he had done so well at Notre Dame that he was going to bolt back to the NFL. And some of you may remember that Charlie had parlayed his time spent as Bill Belichick's offensive coordinator with the New England Patriots into the head gig at Notre Dame. But there was another reason actually for that and why his ties at Notre Dame were indeed so, I guess I'll use the word indelible. And that is because he was the first, Charlie Weiss was the first Notre Dame alum to serve in the head coaching role since Hugh DeVore did back in 1963. And as some of you may remember, Hugh DeVore actually did not do very well in 1963. And I'm not saying that that spoiled it for future Notre Dame alums to serve in the head coaching role, but there was a time in Notre Dame football history where that was kind of a prerequisite especially the closer and closer you got uh, to the Rockney era. Almost all those guys had played at Notre Dame. But uh, anyways, Scott was not having this, man. He heard the reports, just like everybody else around the country at this time, that Charlie Weiss was thinking about leaving Notre Dame after those two seasons to head to New York, to the Meadowlands, to join Giants head coach Tom Coughlin's staff. But Scott Weiland was not going to have it. So he decided to pick up the pen and paper and sent Charlie a letter, actually kind of an impassioned plea that he should stay in South Bend. Here's an excerpt, quote, Okay, Charlie, at this point, I'm going to assume that you haven't spoken to the Giants organization about their, quote, potential coaching job. But leaving Notre Dame, your alma mater, without having achieved really anything of monolithic proportions like you've promised us is absurd and unfair. So at this point, I will get on my knees and beg. Don't do it, coach. Don't do it. Stay and do what you've promised. Your team, your school, the fans, the legacy deserves to be taken to the promised land. Your recruits, Charlie, who are just beginning to trickle in, came to play for you. You, not someone else. They are coming to South Bend for those brutal winners from all over the country, from the South to Southern Cal, just to be led to the promised land. Jimmy Clausen, the most highly recruited player in high school football, committed to Notre Dame. When asked why in a recent interview, he said to play for Coach Wise and get a new environment. Why? The promised land, the crown jewel, the national championship. But we can't start talking about Notre Dame in the same breath as a national championship yet. You've got to win one. The team's got to go out there and get one. We, the Irish nation, fight for it with you together, and we will all win one together and walk away to the promised land together. Yours truly, Scott Weiland, rock and roll singer, Stone Temple Pilots, Velvet Revolver, Legacy, and Notre Dame football fan, end quote. So that was a whole lot, but (laughs) needless to say, Charlie stayed at Notre Dame. And I say this very tongue-in-cheek, but Maybe it was Scott's letter that tipped the scales, but his next three seasons, 
He went a cumulative 16-21 and and was dismissed after the 2009 season. I'd be remiss not to mention in 2007, the Giants won the Super Bowl. Uh, But there you have it, an Irish connection with rock and roll. Other than Bon Jovi, that is. That's a completely different story. But next up, let's talk Knut Rockney, professional football player, right after this. Knut Rockney, which is pronounced with the hard K as he preferred, remains one of the few most famous and transcendent college football coaches in history. So famous was he as a coach that I have little doubt that there are many people who otherwise may not know he even played football at Notre Dame. Now, I bet you, of course, are aware of his playing days as a student of Notre Dame, but have you heard much about his days as a professional football player? So professional or paid football during the day was still very much in its humble origins. The college game had long since taken off, and some universities would draw tens of thousands of fans at each game. Pro football, eh, not so much, actually. But that being said, Rockney did receive compensation to play football even before he stepped foot on Notre Dame's campus through a local athletic club in his home city of Chicago, or at least Chicago land. So, in a sense, Rock was already a professional football player by definition before he even arrived at Notre Dame. Just don't tell the NCAA. I'm of course kidding, but this was truly at a time when the era of guys playing seven or eight football seasons for two or three different schools hadn't ended all that long ago. But also, don't forget, he had a four-year layover between finishing high school and starting college at Notre Dame, where he worked for the uh, post office. So he brought in uh, extra funds while playing semi-pro football. But Rock's career as a football player at Notre Dame went from 1910 through 1913. He graduated in 1914. But even when he was still playing at Notre Dame, he actually suited up at least one Sunday for an independent team which was synonymous for a professional or semi-professional football team. Note that these teams were called independent teams often because this was before the National Football League was founded in 1920, which made them, well, actually legit league teams. But these teams would often employ what were known as ringers, often stars of the college game, to come in and help them for an intermittent game or two. So, sure, these ringers might get paid a few extra bucks more than the rest of the guys on the team, but oftentimes the purse awarded to the winning team was bigger than the losing team. So it was worth the gamble. But it is of note that while the college game was played in stadiums, again, some of which that could seat tens of thousands of people, the professional game at this time was a little more modest. They played on dusty sandlots, municipal parks, large patches of grass... Dairy pastures, you get it, not quite the same thing. Actually, if you've ever seen the movie Leatherheads with George Clooney, the beginning of that movie actually does a great and hilarious job of displaying the disparity between the two, college and professional football. Anyway, one such independent team was the Fort Wayne Friars, and they had just the ringer in mind. So in 1913, while Rock was still a student athlete at Notre Dame, He went out for the Friars while they squared off against a Michigan-based team. And wouldn't you know it, someone who Rockney boxed with at the South Bend Athletic Club was suiting up for the Michigan team. His name was George Greenberg. 
And uh, as Greenberg was warming up, he was eyeing the Fort Wayne Friars during their warm-ups, and, well, he saw a familiar face. As he got closer, he confirmed it indeed was his pal, Knut Rockney, again at the time still a Notre Dame football player. This comes by way of the Coffin Corner newsletter from ProFootballResearchers.com, but the encounter purportedly went something like this, quote, Rock, what the hell are you doing here? Greenberg asked in a surprised and loud tone of voice. Sheesh, I'm doing the same thing you are, George, but try to remember. My name is Jones, okay? Rockney replied. So there you have it. The man known as Jones in the annals of Fort Wayne Friars history is actually Knut Rockney. Rock, of course, had the good sense that he had to change his name because while the eligibility rules were in their infancy, that didn't mean they weren't enforced if you were caught. But this was uh, certainly, again, a violation of the NCAA rules. But again, the NCAA was in no spot to have the ability to enforce all their regulations everywhere at this time. And in my opinion, it was a pretty innocuous violation anyway. Rock always at this time had to scrounge around for money. He didn't come to Notre Dame on a football scholarship. And he was someone who, again, had to save up several years just to get in. And don't forget also, uh, his father had passed away the year before, so perhaps Rock was playing on Sundays to make some extra money to send back to his family. Program historian, coach, player Chet Grant also swore he saw Rockney catching passes on Sundays with other local South Bend independent team before even his stint with the Friars. It is also of note that after Rockney graduated in 1914, yes, he had taken a spot as an assistant coach on Jess Harper's staff at Notre Dame, but he was also coaching semi-professional and independent teams simultaneously, including one sponsored by the local South Bend Muscle Brewing Company, and yet another one called the Silver Edges. Interestingly, as the Coffin Corner newsletter states, quote, Rockney always thought kindly of the pro game. When it was being attacked in earnest by the likes of Amos Alonzo, Stagg, and Fielding Yost, Rockney never did join them in the condemnation of the pro game, although he was badgered to do so, end quote. So there you go. Lo and behold, Rock was on the correct side of history as it pertains to the professional game as well. But I guess really, why wouldn't he be? I will note that professional football, again, was looked at far differently then by the masses as it is now, and again, hate to evoke the movie again to tell the story I am trying to, but Leatherheads really does relay the sentiment and feelings most had about professional football. But Rockney probably could not simply ignore the fact that professional football had helped him, possibly in some very tough financial times. So there you have it. Knut Rockney, also at times known as Jones, professional football player and coach. Yet some more entries for his mythical business card. And I'll be right back. Let's talk about one of the oldest traditions at the University of Notre Dame. It actually has very heavy Rockneyan roots, if you will, but it doesn't have a thing to do with football. So for the first couple decades of the 20th century, the two most followed sports in the United States were baseball and boxing. Now, Notre Dame's curriculum hinged heavily on wellness and physical education, and it was Knut Rockney himself 
that reputedly brought a formal boxing program to Notre Dame in 1912. This is, of course, while he was still a student, but as we learned in the previous anecdote, he was a frequent boxer at the South Bend Athletic Association. But over the next three years, the Irish boxing team took on other programs from schools such as Penn State, Syracuse, Kansas State, Iowa State, Xavier, and Navy. But here by the end of the decade, 1920, now Rockney is the head football coach, and he began arranging for inner hall contests, or a recreational league, if you will. And it has been surmised that he wanted to use the program as a way to make sure his boys stayed in shape during the offseason. He often tabbed members of his football team to officiate the matches even, most notably George Gipp and his pal and fellow Irish star, Hunk Anderson. Based on the Boxing at Notre Dame website, it can be safely assumed that perhaps Rockney kept a close eye on the boxing program until 1927, when the Student Activities Council took it over. By the time Rockney died in March of 1931, his boxing program had already grown to be quite entrenched in the student life at Notre Dame. This is once again according to the boxing website, quote, in 1931, the Scholastic Magazine, Notre Dame's weekly student newspaper, replaced the Student Activities Council as the sponsor of the Bengal Bouts program. Neil C. Huntley, the managing editor of the Scholastic during this time, saw Notre Dame boxing as a unique opportunity. With the help of football coach Hunk Anderson and a talented boxer from upstate New York named Dominic Napolitano, but most folks just called him Nappy for short, the boxing program was transformed. Fellow student-athletes would box each other for the University Boxing Championships that soon became known as the Bengal Mission Bouts. Admission was charged for the first time, and the proceeds would be sent to the Holy Cross Bengal Missions in the province of East Bengal, India, which is now Bangladesh. So, alas, you have the Bengal Bouts, and the very first edition was in 1931 again, and it raised $500 for the missionaries in East Bengal. The tradition persevered, though, throughout the 1930s and 40s, and many football players participated. Often the school would bring back guest celebrities to officiate the matches, such as four horsemen and former head coach Elmer Layden, and former player and future coach Frank Leahy. But the dignitaries didn't stop with Notre Dame either. In 1951, they invited famous boxer Rocky Marciano to campus, and they gave him the Bengal Bouts Award. I'm actually not sure what that was, but that, of course, did bring a lot of exposure to what was quickly becoming a staple of campus. So, Nappy, again, the nickname for Dominic Napolitano, I hope I'm saying that correctly, he soon became the face of the Bengal Bouts. Uh, of course, first as a student, but then he kind of became the coach and de facto director of the event. In fact, it was his words of strong bodies fight, that weak bodies may be nourished, sort of became the slogan for the event. And actually, it's still the slogan to this day. Uh, again, according to the Bengal Bouts website, throughout the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, not only did the bouts again sustain itself and continue to raise money for the missionaries, but its popularity really skyrocketed. And Nappy actually remained at the helm until his passing just after the 1986 iteration of the bouts. But it's unmistakable. Student legacies could be forged in the ring through the bouts, especially if you won a weight class championship, especially if you won it multiple years. 
And would you believe it, Muhammad Ali was even a guest of the bouts one year. But just how much money could the event raise? Throughout the 80s and 90s, it was common for the university to send $50,000 or so every single year to the missionaries through the event. In 2001, that number increased to over 75000 It's been long reputed that short of a football game or a big-time basketball game, men or women's, that the Bengal bouts were the best-attended event on campus on any given year. But in 2010, $100,000 were raised, which crossed the event over the $1 million donated in its history. In 2020, about two weeks before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, the tournament celebrated its 90th anniversary. And of course, it continues to this day. Actually, you can jump on YouTube and find a whole bunch of the fights if you want to watch them. And just as a quick aside, I used to visit campus a lot around this time, you know, late February, early March, as uh, working in admissions for my alma mater, Earlham College. So it's actually how I learned about the Bengal bouts. I visited once and I just heard everybody was talking about them and I might have saw some sign on the side of the road. And so I remember asking Jim Augustine of Augie's Locker Room. I had no idea what the Bengal bouts were, but he was kind enough to share it with me and it's, yeah, just one of those memories I've, I've retained. My first exposure with the Bengal bouts and probably early on in my friendship with uh, Augie as well. So there you have it. Next time you hear about the Bengal bouts, perhaps you're already familiar with them or perhaps this is a brand new thing. If you jump over and learn anything else about the Bengal bouts, watch any of the fights, don't forget that this event is deeply entrenched from the mind, the brilliant mind, that is, of Knut Rockney. So that'll about bring me to the end here. I hope everybody enjoyed Volume 3 of Alex's Irish Anecdotes. And again, if you're curious, please feel free to go back and listen to uh, Volume 1 and 2, Episodes 64 and 65. Those came out in July of 2022. And again, short, brisk-paced stories that, though not a full episode, are just as interesting, I think. But I hope you did enjoy this offering, and I'd like to give quick shout-out to the Consensus All-Americans once again, our sponsor WCScreens.com, and Joseph Rakish, whose song Knut Rockney serves as this show's theme song. Go out and download it, give it a spin, a stream, whatever it is, however it is you listen to music. Before I sign off, I'd like to say once again, thank you so much for being a listener of Onward to Victory. It is truly a pleasure and an honor, honestly, to be able to do this and to celebrate our beloved university and football team in this fashion with a bunch of people who I know really, really appreciate this kind of a show. And with that, I am going to sign off. This has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I am your host, Alex Painter. And as always, go Irish. Irish.